Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2.7, The Conqueror and His Mother. It's the last decades of the first century AD. In the Mediterranean, Mount Vesuvius has erupted and submerged Pompeii beneath fire and ash. In the Middle East, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Roman forces. In China, scholars debate the legacy of Confucius whilst the Han Empire teeters on the edge. And in India, invaders have pushed back the largest of the homegrown Indian empires and the invaders seem set to dominate the subcontinent forever. The invaders are the Shakas, the Scythian horsemen from Central Asia. And the homegrown Indian empire, shrunken down, beaten back, are the Satavahanas. Once they were the subjects of the kings of Pataliputra. Once they covered the whole of the Deccan Plateau, from east to west in a ribbon across the waste of India. But that was before the invaders came. And now, those glory days have gone. The Satavahanas aren't done, though. They are the comeback kings of ancient India. And this week, the greatest of the Satavahana kings comes back. He will slaughter the invaders and will win everything that was lost. He will become the supreme sovereign of southern India, pushing back the waves of invaders throughout his long reign, only finally letting them through after his death. It's a great story. Let's get going. The new king of the Satavahanas was called Gautami Putra. His name means son of Gautami. Gautami is a woman's name, so he's named after his mother. The name probably helped pick him out in a royal family with many princes and many different queens. It also shows his Brahmana credentials. His mother was from the highly respectable Gautam clan. Now, none of this naming convention is very new. We've heard of earlier dynasties naming their kings in the same way. But it's important in this case, because it means that as soon as you introduce the man, you also introduce the mother. And his mother will be very important in his story. His mother is destined to outlive him and tell his story to the world. As you may have guessed in the title of the episode, The Conqueror and His Mother, Gautami Putra is the conqueror and his mother is his mother. So Gautami Putra inherits the kingdom from his father, but the kingdom is in a perilous state. In fact, it's hard to see how it could have been worse. So, new king, here's the report. Here's the status of your kingdom. That broad ribbon of land we once controlled, all but gone. Lords of the Deccan, that's what they called your predecessors. But I wouldn't go trying out the title anymore. You'll just get laughed at. That shiny capital in the east, the one that controlled all the trade which flowed down to the ports on the coast and got you all of those taxes, the capital whose name translates to firm standing, well... The thing is, it didn't stand firm enough. It's now deep in enemy territory. The invaders have it now. And the army? The Satavahana army? Well, history certainly isn't going to bother remembering anything they've done in the last few decades. Things, young prince, are not looking good. But don't worry, dear listener. Things are about to turn around. If Gautami Putra is famous for one thing... It's for Satavahana Kula Yasa Pratistapana Kara. That's what 
Gautamiputra's mother wrote about him, and it means that he established the fame of the Satavahana family. And that's just what he's going to do. Well, we've introduced one side. Best to introduce the other now, the invaders. The king of the invaders was the guy we met last week, Nahapana. Remember him? He was the governor's son who grew up in a trading port on the east coast of India. And he learnt those merchant sensibilities. And using those, he controlled the Deccan Plateau. From cotton farm to port, he controlled the land and taxed it heavily. He built up a legendary wealth. And Nahapana and his eager son-in-law dominated the lands. So on the one hand, we've got Gautamiputra, the Satavahana king, over there in the east. And on the other hand, we've got Nahapana the invader over there in the west. An old Jain story tells about how Gautamiputra started to turn back the invaders. The first thing he tried to do was attack Nahapana's new capital city. But Nahapana was immensely rich, and he used his riches to defend himself and his city. He offered to pay thousands to anyone who would bring back a Satavahana head or even a hand. So presumably you get three thousands for each body, one head and two hands. Gruesome stuff. Well, gruesome but effective. The invaders' army, Nahapana's army, were falling all over themselves to get into battle, grab their heads and get their payout. And against this, Gautamiputra couldn't win. He still had a sizable army, the leftovers of the Satavahana army, but he had no money to motivate it. All the money had gone the way of the empire. Once it was there, now it's gone. So, in the face of these greedy invaders, Gautamiputra's army was slaughtered, and they turned back. Gautamiputra retreated and regrouped, and he made another attack on the invaders' capital the next year. But once again, Nahapana had his riches, and he offered thousands for each head and each hand. And again, Gautamiputra's army was slaughtered, and it turned back. Things couldn't continue. The invaders were such great merchants that they had enough to pay for the slaughter of all of the rest of the Satavahana army. Something had to change. Now, Gautamiputra had a clever minister. So many good stories about ancient Indian kings include clever ministers. But this one was particularly clever. He persuaded the king to banish him for some imaginary crime. And he left in disgrace. And he wandered around a bit, and then he entered the invader's capital, the enemy capital. And he didn't appear as a minister, not a defector from the enemy. He just dressed himself and disguised himself like a normal person, like so many others fleeing the consequences of war. Now, because the minister was extra sneaky, he gave himself a new name to hide his identity. And because it's fun to say, we'll use his fake name. Lord Gugula. So Lord Gugula lived there in the invaders' capital for a bit. Nothing much happened, but pretty soon the story of his banishment reached the invaders' kingdom, and King Nahapana heard it, and he managed to work out that this new Lord Gugula chap must be the banished minister. So King Nahapana sent some men to Lord Gugula's house to try and persuade him to join his side, the invaders' side. But they came back empty-handed. Lord Gugula, it seemed, was playing hard to get. 
Eventually, the king went out himself to Lord Gagula's house and tried to persuade him and eventually managed to persuade him to come and be a minister and tell him how to beat his old master, Gautamiputra. Now, we all know that the best sort of politician is a reluctant one. And the king knew this too. So he asked his new reluctant minister what he should do, and he trusted him. And the minister said, look, make yourself out to be a great king. Donate money lavishly, build temples, build stupas, build tanks. Spend your time doing good things, and good things will come to you. It sounds like good advice. So that's exactly what the king did. He spent his money on temples and stupas and tanks. And soon enough, the treasury was empty. Well, Lord Gagula had been waiting for this moment. He sent word secretly to his real master, Gautamiputra. And Gautamiputra readied his army to destroy the invader's capital. Nahapana was understandably quite disturbed. He had won the previous battles simply by relying on his vast treasury to motivate his army. But now that treasury was empty. How was he going to win this one? Lord Gagula, still pretending to be the faithful minister, said, Don't worry, leave it to me, but I'll need some money. Give me all the woman's jewellery. And, I imagine, Lord Gagula was probably buried under a large pile of women's jewellery by a most anxious king. It's not entirely clear where all the wealth from that jewellery went, because it didn't manage to slow down Gautamiputra at all. Pretty soon, Gautamiputra and his army were at the gates. So King Nahapana again summoned his faithful minister, Lord Gagula. He said, what should I do? And again, Lord Gagula said, don't worry, leave it to me, but I'll need some money. Just give me everything you have but King Nahapana had nothing left. He fled the city, and Gautamiputra and his Satavahana army had the invaders on the run. And here the story enters slightly firmer historical ground. Gautamiputra and his army swept over the lands from east to west. They got all the way to 100 kilometres from the west coast. Here, the Deccan Plateau becomes foothills as it goes down towards the sea. And there's a town there now called Nashik, and that's where the Satavahan army finally pinned down the invaders. And they slaughtered them. Gautamiputra sent them running for the hills, literally. Now this land, before it had been liberated, used to belong to Nahapana's son-in-law. And in particular, Nahapana's son-in-law owned a certain field, as a personal belonging. So Gautamiputra took the field for himself and in commemoration of a battle well won, he donated it for the upkeep of the local Buddhist community. And he must have had a great party. Whilst Gautamiputra was celebrating his success, the defeated King Nahapana fled south. Through lakes and rivers, parallel to the coast, along the edges of the Deccan Plateau, to where the hills really start where the western guts really take off. And with him, he took the tattered remnants of his army and his family, presumably including an infuriated son-in-law who just lost his lands. Gone were the riches, now they were little more than bandits in the hills. But the hills wouldn't save them. Gautamiputra celebrated for probably a couple of weeks, and then he gathered his army 
and he roared up into the hills. He exterminated King Nahapana and his family. Only one of Nahapana's family escaped their fate. He fled south, and in later years, he was able to carve out a small kingdom for himself. But the rule of Nahapana and his family was effectively over. Now, Gautami Putra, as we know, liked a good celebration, so long as it was pious. So he celebrated again. In amongst the hills, where Gautami Putra had his final victory over Nahapana, there were some ancient caves. Actually, they were ancient even back then in Gautami Putra's day. And they were well worth a visit. The caves are huge for something carved by mere humans. The main one must be three stories high at the peak of its arching roof. And inside, the caves are like, they're like long prayer halls. Surrounded on both sides by these ornate pillars. And the pillars are carved out of the rock as if they supported the roof. And at the end, the cave curves round into a horseshoe. And there sits something a bit like a Buddhist stupa. A dome sort of construction. Outside, there's an ancient pillar with four lines facing in four directions. Some sort of terribly poor imitation when it's placed alongside Ashoka's pillar of four lines, but it's impressive in its own right. The caves are still there, and it's an easy-to-get-to tourist destination. Well worth a visit. I'm sure Gautami Putra agreed. Because he was pleased enough to donate an entire village to support the upkeep of the Buddhist monks there. And with that, he went on his way. Gautami Putra spent the rest of his life consolidating his empire. All those legendary riches, all those coins which Nahapana had made, Gautami Putra dug them up, and he simply stamped his own face over Nahapana's. And then Gautami Putra went on a digvijaya. A Digvijaya is a ritual conquest a king performs. The word itself gives a reasonably good sense of what it means. Dik in Sanskrit means direction. Vijaya means victory or conquest. So a Digvijaya is a conquest of directions. Here's how it works. After you've done some work at the sacrificial fire, the king sets out to the north with an army. And once he's kind of reached the edge of his kingdom, he turns around in a huge circle around the kingdom. And each neighbouring king he meets, they either receive uh, the king as their overlord or else they're conquered. So the king basically has to defeat all of the surrounding kingdoms or get their tribute. And after all that conquering is over, the king returns to his capital city in the centre of this great circle of conquest. And once the ritual is complete, that capital is now the centre of the world. The Digvijaya is a little bit like the Ashvamedha, the horse sacrifice we talked about at the beginning of this series. A king who did the Digvijaya would have to have military supremacy and a great deal of money and time. The most famous Digvijaya of all is in the Mahabharata, the great Hindu epic, but that deserves a special episode all to itself. For now, the point is that Gautami Putra went around conquering all of the areas or, or getting supremacy over all of the kingdoms surrounding his new kingdom. And the circle of his supremacy was huge. He conquered from the eastern guts to the western guts, from the Vindhya, mountains on the very edge of the valley of the Ganges, all the way down south to the Nilgiri hills. And even beyond that, into the southern tip of India, 
where three smaller empires still fought one another, Gautami Putra thought of himself as supreme. It's said that he led his horses to drink in three oceans, east, west, and south. And nobody was left to stop him. After a reign of 30 years, Gautami Putra died. His mother, who he was named after, still lived. She was in her mid-60s. And she seems to have been a passionately loyal woman. Perhaps to relive old glories, she went to the place where Gautami Putra had won the great battle over the invaders. That town now called Nashik, 100 kilometres from the west coast of India. It's now firmly back in safe Satavahana lands. Remember, this was the place where Gautami Putra had bought a field for the Buddhist community to mark the event of his victory. But the mother noticed that the field had grown fallow. It wasn't being properly cultivated, and the village attached to the field had become impoverished. It just wasn't producing enough income to support the Buddhist community any longer. So Queen Gautami persuaded her new king, her son, to swap the field for another one. And then Gautami got some more money from her son and had a cave carved into the nearby hill. Nowadays, the cave is called the Gautami Putra Cave, which I fancy may have met her approval. But ancient Indians called it by its proper name, Devi Lena, the Queen's Cave, because it was her who had it hollowed out, carved with stories, written with inscriptions. The cave is her eulogy to her son. The outside of the cave is carved like a fine veranda. Steps lead up to it, and the stone around it is carved like a wooden fence. Pillars appear to hold up the roof beams. Once you're up on the veranda, you'll be confronted with the windows and a central doorframe. There would have been a wooden door here, back in the day. The grooves where the wood went are still there. Above the door is a Bodhi tree and a sculpture of Gautami Putra himself saluting you as you enter the cave. On the sides of the door there are more panels, and the panels tell the story of Gautami Putra Nahapana, the Indian king and the invader, and their relationship with Raja Lakshmi. Raja Lakshmi is something like the goddess of sovereignty. At the start, Raja Lakshmi lives happily with the Satavahana family. They rule the territory. But soon, Nahapana is there, First, he tries to coax her away, persuade her away, trying to win sovereignty for himself. She's, of course, completely unmoved. So Nahapana picks her up, plonks her on his shoulder, and marches off. Gautami Putra sets off to rescue her. He brings her back, and she comes and lives again with the Satavahana family, giving blessing to Gautami Putra's son, the next emperor of the Satavahanas. The message is clear. Sovereignty has returned to the Satavahana family to stay this time. Inside, Queen Gautami carved her son's story and her own. The story it tells is somewhat sentimental. We'll listen to it at the end of this podcast. The picture of a man and his accomplishments as can only be seen through a mother's eyes. And it would be easy to be gently mocking about it, the great king being a mama's boy. But in fact, I think it's intimate and immensely touching. It's a human voice. It's a person in grief 
reaching out to us across nearly two millennia. The bottomless sorrow and pride of a mother who has lost her son. The cave took about 19 years to finish. After it was finished, a village was donated for its upkeep, and the cave still stands there today, as a monument to a mother's love and to the pinnacle of the Satavahanas. Now, even Gautamiputra, the greatest of the Satavahana kings, hadn't conquered all of the invaders. In the northwest, just off the Deccan Plateau, the Shakas were still there. They weren't quite what the term invader might lead you to think, as we'll find out. A new family had come to replace the dynasty that Gautamiputra destroyed. And like the old family, Nahapana's family, this new family started small. It started with a chap called Chastana, ruler of a smallish territory about a third of modern-day Indian province of Gujarat. Actually, that's not just a size comparison. He literally ruled the third of Gujarat in India that's closest to modern-day Pakistan. Now, Chastana was probably an independent ruler, at least in practice. Though, like most other shakas, he called himself Kshatrapa regional governor. No doubt, news reached Chastana that Gautamiputra was thrashing the other Shakas on the Deccan Plateau. But Chastana didn't send his army to their aid. So far as we know, he did nothing to help at all. Most likely, if you'd gone, why aren't you helping your fellow Shakas? He wouldn't have understood why you would think he would. They were, after all, part of a completely different kingdom. Fellow invader or not, Chastana just wasn't moved to help other Shaka kingdoms any more than any other Indian king would have been. Quite the opposite, in fact, because Chastana allied himself with the Satavahanas, Indian and invader dynasties tying themselves together. Gautamiputra's grandson married Chastana's great-grandson, or great-granddaughter, sorry, to seal the deal. Chastana, it seems, was not the sort of man who saw the world in terms of India and invader at all. In his mind, kings were kings. But though Chastana didn't quite see himself as an interloper in India, that didn't stop him wanting to enlarge his kingdom. And he got his chance after the great Gautamiputra died. Gautamiputra's son inherited the throne of the Satavahanas, but he was, well, he was a bit incompetent. Or perhaps he was simply not as forceful as his father. That might have been enough for Chastana. Chastana launched his armies inland up onto the Deccan Plateau, and the northern provinces of the Deccan Plateau fell before them. In only a few years, perhaps decades, his dynasty had captured territories all along the west and north of the Deccan Plateau. By 110 AD, Chastana had reached the great ancient city of Ujjain, the place where Emperor Shokra had once cut his teeth. And he captured much more besides. Avanti, Akara, Kukara, Anupa, all came under Chastana's dynasty. And, like any Indian king who has conquered a large territory, Chastana pulled in his family to help rule it. Being a king is a family business. First, he took his son, he made him Kshatrapa, which I suppose in practice pretty much meant the same thing as making him viceroy. 
Give them a little mini kingdom of their own to practice at rulership, to practice at being king. Sadly, it was not to be. Chastana's son died quite young, certainly well before Chastana did. So Chastana pulled in his grandson to fill the void. Which was fine, because his grandson was a very competent fellow. His name was Rudradharman, and that's a name to remember. It was Rudradharman's daughter who had been married in to the Satavahana royal family, to Gautami Putra's granddaughter, grandson. Now, Rudradharman was tied in to the Satavahana royal family, but that wasn't going to stop him invading them. After a long rule, about six decades perhaps, Chastana died and his grandson Rudradharman succeeded him and he kept on the march into Satavahana territory. Rudradharman tells us that he beat the Satavahanas, lords of the Deccan, in a fair fight twice. But he tells us he was generous enough to let the defeated Satavahana king live. He was, after all, his own son-in-law. I imagine his daughter would have been quite upset if he'd killed her husband. It's all getting a little bit confusing, isn't it? The Shakas and the Satavahanas and the back and the forth and the back and the forth. But look, put this deadly tug of war between kings aside for just a moment, because something even more momentous is going on. Now, 200 years ago, the Shaka invaders had come pouring down into the Himalayas, and they had come as an alien people. And to them, India would have been an alien world. These guys wore funny hats, they spoke in a funny language, and weirdest of all, they wore trousers. Now, imagine you're someone from Pataliputra back then, 200 years before this episode. You've seen loads of Indian armies, Indian invaders at your gates. That's old hat. You've even seen a Greek army pour through your walls. That's kind of old hat too now. But the Shakas, the Shakas... They would have looked like something else, something unknown, something foreign. You can begin to get a bit of a sense of how they would have felt when you read the great Sanskrit grammarian Patanjali. Patanjali wrote a, a book of Sanskrit grammar about the time the Shakas were invading India. And for Patanjali, well, you can kind of feel the outraged grumpiness about it all from his Sanskrit grammar book. For Patanjali, both Greeks and Shakas, they're people who belong outside Aryavata, beyond the Himalayas, outside the land of the civilised. They're foreigners. He calls them mlecha. It's the Sanskrit word for barbarian because their tongue sounds like, their speech sounds like mlech, mlech, mlech. And in fact, Patanjali complains that he, these, these outsiders, these foreigners, they distort Sanskrit. And he works hard to throw out all the barbarian influence and make Sanskrit the pure language of ancient India. And I think that's how most people think of Sanskrit today. They think of Sanskrit as the pure classical language of ancient India, kind of the equivalent of Latin and Greek for the classical Mediterranean. So suppose we think about those two kings we ended with. Gautami Putra and Rudradharman. And suppose I asked you which of those two kings wrote the best Sanskrit? 
Now, unless you're anticipating me, give an honest answer, you're probably going to say it's Gautami Putra. He writes the best Sanskrit. After all, he's the scion of this great Indian dynasty with roots going as far back as the Mauryan Empire and maybe even further. And if we're really honest about it, we'd probably guess that Rudradharman didn't know Sanskrit at all. After all, he's the invader, he's the barbarian, he's the mletcher. But if we said that, we would get things entirely upside down. Because by the period of this episode, it's the Shakas who are the experts in Sanskrit. Their Sanskrit is the purest. It's the sort of thing Patanjali himself would be proud of. King Rudradharman himself wrote in beautiful, elegant Sanskrit. He wrote poetry. Even his inscriptions are shining examples of Sanskrit. Here he is talking about a lake's dam bursting. He says, The water was churned by a storm. A most tremendous fury befitting the end of a mundane age. It tore down hilltops, trees, banks. It tore through turrets, upper stories, gates and high places of shelter. All were scattered and broken to pieces. The dam was thus laid open, down to the bottom of the river. And that's not even poetry. That's just some inscription about him rebuilding a lake. Put this Sanskrit side by side with the inscriptions of the Satavahanas, even the grandest ones, and it still seems very refined. Besides, the Satavahanas didn't write in Sanskrit at all. They wrote in Prakrit. Patanjali would not, I think, approve. So, as far as the classical language of ancient India goes, the invaders, the people who were once foreigners, have now become the experts. And there are various other ways in which these Shaka invaders had absorbed Indian practice. Take religion and caste, for example. Now, the early Shakas, the ones who came pouring down first from China, they had been Buddhist, much like the great kingdom of those other barbarians, the Greeks. But by the period of our podcast, the Shakas aren't Buddhist anymore. There's ruins, there's rumours that uh, Chastana was a Jain, and it's certain that his grandson, Rudradharman, was a big supporter of the old-time religion, Brahminical Orthodoxy. Rudradharman, he venerated the Brahmins and followed the Vedic rites just as much as the Satavahana kings did, step in step. In fact, there are uncanny similarities between the devotions of the two sets of kings. On the Indian side, the Satavahanas boast about donating thousands of cows to Brahmins. On the invader's side, Rudradharman boasts of exactly the same thing, in almost exactly the same words. I donated cows and honoured the Brahmanas for a thousand years. On the Indian side, Gautami Putra Satavahana, the Indian king, he saw his role as king as someone who's kind of keep the Varnas in place. He's to watch over the Varnas, be the kind of cap of the Varnas. On the invader's side, Rudradharman, the Shaka king, he says almost exactly the same thing. He says, I'm resorted to by all the castes. I'm chosen as their lord to protect them. The Shakas had become absorbed in Indian culture. And, and mostly it was that direction. It was the Shakas absorbing Indian culture. There was a little bit going in the other direction, a little bit of Indian culture kind of taking on some of the ideas the Shakas had when they first came. For example, 
Um, most men and women of the time wore a headdress, and after the shaka is invaded, the headdress came a bit pointed, like an imitation of one of those pointy, weird shaka hats. But that's kind of a trivial thing. Most of the influence is the shakas adopting Indian customs, Indian dress, Indian culture. Let's not go too far, though. The shakas, even after 200 years, were still foreigners to many people in India. They were still marked apart. For instance, look at the texts, the Indian texts. In some of them, the shakas are treated as insiders inside the caste system. There's a famous law book called the Manusmriti, and it counts the shakas as part of the kingly caste, the Kshatriya Varna. And it's true they're included in the kingly caste as people who have gradually sunk out of it down to the condition of the shudras, down to the bottom of the caste pile. But that's not because the shakas are foreign. Rather, it's because the shakas didn't perform enough of the sacred rites, didn't consult the Brahmins enough. And that, of course, implies that the shakas should have been consulting the Brahmins, that the shakas should have been part of the Vedic rites. They're absorbed into the Varna system. So some texts treat shakas basically as Indians now. But in other texts, the shakas are grouped with other barbarians, the Greeks and the Pallavas and whatnot. All the outsiders together, outside of the system. It's all much more confusing than Amir Khan's Facebook wall. By the way, it's worth saying that this is a particular fact about the shakas and the Pallavas, their absorption of Indian culture in this way. The same thing doesn't automatically apply to other invaders and interlopers in India, and in particular it doesn't apply to the modern invaders like the British. Incorporating yourself into ancient Indian culture was a different thing than incorporating yourself into modern Indian culture. For one thing, the idea of India or Indian just wasn't at the forefront of everyone's minds in ancient India the way it is today. In fact, the first time the idea of India is mentioned in an inscription we still have was only a couple of episodes ago. It was the inscription by the King of Kalinga, the one who disappeared after his inscription was made. So the idea of India was there, but it just wasn't mentioned that often. And in any case, the Shaka and the Pallava were particularly good at integrating. They were part of the Persian world before they came to India. And for centuries, the Persians had excelled at adopting the clothes, the customs and the habits of pretty much whoever they came across pretty much whenever they liked. Anyway, this sort of subtle issue is about to be swept away because another invader is going to come. The third in the waves of invaders into India and the biggest wave yet. And they're going to found an empire with its base just outside of India. It's going to become one of the three great empires of the world. But that is a story for another episode. Okay, enough of the shuckers. Let's get back to the man of the hour, Gautami Putra, the greatest of the lords of the Deccan. And I can think of nothing better than reading his mother's eulogy for her dead son. It goes like this. Success. In the 19th year of King Pulamai, in the second fortnight of summer, on the 13th day, the King of Kings Gautami Putra, 
who was equal in strength to the mountains, who was king of Asaka, Ashaka, Mulaka, Surata, Kukura, Aparamata, Anupa, you get the idea, there are lots of places he's king of. He was obeyed by the circle of all kings on earth. His face was beautiful and pure, like the lotus opened by the rays of the sun. His chargers had drunk the water of three oceans. His face was lovely and radiant, like the orb of the full moon. His gait, his gait was beautiful like the gait of a choice elephant. His arms were muscular and rounded, broad and long as the folds of the Lord of Serpents. His fearless hand was wet by the water poured out to impart fearlessness. He had unchecked obedience towards his mother. He properly devised time and place for the pursuit of the triple objects of human activity, karma, dharma, arta. He sympathised fully with the woe of the citizens. He crushed down the pride and conceit of the Kshatriyas. He destroyed the Shakas, the Greeks and the Pallavas. He didn't levy taxis except for in accordance with justice. He was alien to hurting life, even that of an offending enemy. He furthered the homesteads of the low as well as those of the twice-born. He restored the glory of the Satavahana family. His feet were saluted by all the provinces. He stopped the contamination of the four Varnas. He conquered multitudes of enemies in many battles. His victorious banner was unvanquished. His capital was unassailable to his foes. He inherited from a long line of ancestors the privilege of kingly music, the abode of traditional law, the refuge of the virtuous, the asylum of fortune, the fountain of good manners, the unique controller, the unique archer, the unique hero, the unique Brahmana, equal in prowess to Rama. The old queen's eulogy goes on. And at the end, she turns to talk a little bit about herself. Gautami Putra's mother, the great queen Gautami, Delighting in truth, charity, patience and respect for life. Bent on penance, self-control, restraint and abstinence. Fully having the bearing of the wife of a royal sage. Caused as a pious gift on the top of this mountain, this cave, to be made quite equal to the divine mansions. She says how she donated it to the Buddhist people there. And at the end she signs off with this. Renunciate enjoyments of every kind. And that's what we've got time for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Just before we go, there was a puzzle, a mathematical puzzle, we had last week from an ancient Indian text, the Lilivati, and it went like this. There's a group of elephants and a third and a, th- oh, sorry, a half and a third of the half go off to a cave and a sixth and a seventh of the sixth go and drink water by a river and a ninth and an eighth of the ninth go and sport in a pond full of lotuses. And then at the end, there's left the lover king of the elephants and three of his female elephants. If that was the situation, how many elephants were there in the flock? The answer... 1008. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. 
If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehorsid 2 Memorial Fund. A couple of people got in touch to say they had. Thank you very much indeed. It matters a great deal. I hope you all have a great week. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you next time. Take care.